Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome to this Institute for Government event to discuss the risks facing the UK's public finances and fiscal sustainability. I'm Gemma Tetlow, Chief Economist here at the IFG, and I'm really delighted that today we're partnering with the OBR to talk about the fiscal risks and sustainability for the UK. The last few days and weeks have been really dominated by short-term political questions. Um, and unfortunately, the launch of the OBR's fiscal risks and sustainability report last week got somewhat lost in the maelstrom of all of that um, political news. But the reality that the fiscal risk and sustainability report spelt out is really what the next prime minister and the ones that come after him or her are going to have to deal with in terms of the challenges facing the UK. So I'm really delighted that we're able to be here today to discuss some of these issues with an excellent panel of experts. So we have with us Andrew Scott, who's a professor at London Business School, an expert in some of the demographic challenges. Rosa Hodgkin, who's one of my colleagues here at the Institute for Government, has been thinking about government resilience and preparedness for catastrophic risks. Richard Hughes, who is chair of the OBR, and Malcolm Chalmers, who is deputy director general of the Royal United Services Institute and a, a real expert in some of the geopolitical risks that have been manifesting themselves this year. Um, we're going to run today's session with a presentation from Richard of some of the key highlights from his report last week, then a panel discussion amongst all of us, and then an opportunity for Q&A um, from the audience, both here in the room and for those of you watching online. Um, please do start sending in your questions um, during the start of the event, and we can come to those when we get to the Q&A section. Um, you can do those online via Slido. Um, uh, and you, if you're in the room, then please just raise your hand at the appropriate moment. Um, we'll be live tweeting this event from at IFG events account uh, using the hashtag, hashtag IFG economy. So please do follow and tweet along. Um, this event is on the record and a video will be available on our website within 24 hours if you miss any of it or want to watch it back. So without further ado, Richard. Great. Thanks, Gemma. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm going to take you through the highlights of our 2022 fiscal risks and sustainability report, uh, which came out last week. Um, the FRS differs from our semi-annual forecast that you may be more familiar with, which provide a central view of the UK's economic and fiscal prospects over the next five years. Instead, the aim of these reports are really to highlight the risks that might derail those forecasts over the next five years, as well as highlight the pressures that are hanging off the end of that forecast and, and hang over the outlook in the period beyond the five-year forecast horizon, looking out 50 years ahead. And this edition of the report looks at two near-term risks to the public finances, one from rising geopolitical tensions in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and the second, the risks from higher and more volatile energy prices in the aftermath of that invasion. And the report also updates a set of long-term fiscal projections, which consider what changing demographic, economic, and environmental trends mean for the underlying pressures on the public finances looking out over a 50-year period. And starting with rising geopolitical tensions, historically, wars have been the single largest source of fiscal risks in the UK. And indeed, as you can see, from the green area on this chart, uh, fighting wars and paying the interest on the resulting war debt was most of what central government spent its money on up until about 1900. The First and Second World Wars were particularly expensive, and unlike in previous wars, the overall level of public spending never fell back to pre-war levels um, uh, as the peacetime welfare state expanded in the interim. And the period after the Second World War was particularly exceptional in that defence spending itself didn't immediately fall back to the low single digits of GDP that usually prevailed in peacetime in the UK. And instead, defence spending fell more slowly as Cold War tensions eased, 
over the second half of the 20th century. And this so-called peace dividend, which was reaped by successive chancellors, amounted to about 8% of GDP over the latter half of the 20th century. As, as defense spending fell from 10% of GDP at the end of the Korean War in the 1950s to 5.5% of GDP as the UK withdrew from east of Suez during the 1960s, to 4% prior to the fall of the Berlin Wall during the 1980s, to the roughly 2% of GDP where it stands today. And as you can see from the blue area on this chart, this peace dividend created the fiscal space for the expansion of health, education, welfare, and other public spending over the post-war period. But a key question hanging over the fiscal outlook in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine is what might that, that imply for future levels of defense spending here in the UK and the resources available to meet other pressures and priorities. More than 15 other NATO member countries have already committed to increasing their defense spending to meet or exceed the NATO benchmark of 2% of GDP. And Germany's commitment to spend an additional 100 billion euros is the most significant in absolute terms and, and could, if fulfilled, see Germany overtake UK, the UK as the second largest defense spender in NATO after the US. And so in the context of what we now know about the Russian threat and commitments from our NATO allies, we look at three scenarios for the path of UK defense spending over the next 15 years. At the optimistic end of the spectrum, one could say that Russia's failure to secure a swift and decisive victory in Ukraine and recent commitments from our NATO allies mean that in principle, we could reduce defense expenditure here in the UK and follow along that post-World War, post -World War II trend down to 1% of GDP. That would save the government 27 billion pounds in today's terms. But the UK's commitment to the NATO 2% target would seem to rule this option out of hand, at least for now. Um, a second scenario looks at what would happen if we tried to stay the largest absolute spender in NATO in light of the German commitment to spend 2% of their larger GDP. That would require defense spending in the UK to rise to just under 3% of GDP by the mid-2030s, but at an additional cost of £24 billion in today's terms. And the Prime Minister's statement at the NATO summit in Madrid last week that defense spending would reach 2.5% of GDP by the 2030s was broadly consistent um, with that trajectory. And finally, uh, were the Russian invasion of Ukraine to augur a more seismic shift in the geopolitical landscape and require Cold War levels of resource mobilization, then going back to the 4% of GDP spent on defense during the 1980s could cost the UK an additional £49 billion a year. Moving on to the second main chapter of the report, another consequence of the Russian invasion of Ukraine was an increase in energy prices, which, has already be which had already begun to rise late last year on the back of surging demand following the lifting of lockdown restrictions in advanced economies. In our March spring statement forecast, we assumed that gas prices would rise to about £3 per therm and oil to $100 a barrel before falling some way back toward their pre-invasion levels, as shown in the graph here uh, in green. Since then, both oil and gas spot prices have remained highly volatile, and futures prices have risen even further, as you can see in the yellow lines on this chart. And so to illustrate the economic and fiscal risks associated with higher energy prices, we looked at two scenarios for the evolution of gas and oil prices over the next five years. The first scenario was a short, sharp shock, shown here in red, in which gas prices more than doubled to £7 per therm, and oil prices rise to $147 a barrel, before both fall back to the levels assumed at our March forecast by the mid-2020s. The second is a smaller but more persistent shock, shown in blue, in which gas prices stay at their current levels of around £3 per therm, and oil prices rise to and stay at $147 per barrel uh, for the next five years. In terms of what those do to the economy, uh, the temporary spike scenario pushes quarterly inflation into double digits next year before turning negative as energy prices fall back. And the, result, the resulting contraction of real incomes and consumption is sufficient to tip the UK economy into recession next year. GDP falls about 4% below our March forecast in the depths of that recession, but then it recovers quite quickly as prices fall back and there's no long-term scarring of economic activity. 
The permanent price shock scenario sees inflation remain above our forecasts for much longer, averaging 4% higher over 2023-24 and not falling back to its 2% target until late in 2025. And persistently high energy prices permanently raise economy-wide costs. And for that reason, we think it would reduce the level of GDP by around 2% over the medium term. So there is longer-term scarring um, from, a, from a permanent energy price shock. Turning to their fiscal implications, higher energy prices add to borrowing by pushing up the costs of welfare and inflation-linked debt, as well as reducing the yield on income taxes. And these, these costs are only partially offset by the additional yields from North Sea revenues. And higher energy prices could prove particularly expensive fiscally, if they turn out to be permanent, and government is compelled to maintain current levels of support to households with the cost of energy. This could more than double the fiscal costs of the shock and see government borrowing an additional £40 billion every year. Looking out over the longer term, the UK obviously has more flexibility to alter where it gets its energy from, both to reduce our dependence on volatile fossil fuels and to meet our ambition to get to net zero carbon emissions by the middle of the century. So the second half of the energy chapter looks at the challenge of changing the UK's energy mix um, and, and changing the energy mix of the UK economy, which despite using two-thirds less energy per unit of GDP than at the time of the last energy crisis in the 1970s, still relies on fossil fuels for two-thirds of that energy. Um, but in looking to shift away our energy mix away from fossil fuels, the UK faces a trade-off between three energy policy objectives. First, affordability in terms of the cost of building, operating and decommissioning energy infrastructure. Secondly, cleanliness, in terms of the volume of carbon emissions generated in the process of producing that energy. And thirdly, security, in terms of the potential for disruption of that supply, both as a result of geopolitical or meteorological or even seasonal factors. And in thinking through what that dilemma, that, what that trilemma might mean for potential fiscal costs, given the greater focus on energy security alongside um, the need to get to net zero, fossil fuels used to be relatively cheap, um, but they're also the single largest source of carbon emissions and have become both more expensive and less secure following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. If the UK were, tried, were to try to retain some significant share of fossil fuels in our energy mix, there could also be greater pressure on government to make it, make it cleaner by subsidising some of the 16 to £22 billion pounds costs of adding carbon capture and storage technology to the next generation of gas-fired power plants. By contrast, nuclear energy is clean and reliable, but nuclear power plants are very expensive to build and even more expensive to decommission. And if we're to meet the government's ambition to build an additional 18 gigawatts of nuclear power generation capacity, the government could come under pressure to pick up some of the huge construction costs of building those nuclear power stations, which the latest estimates from Hinkley Point C suggest could be on the order of £170 billion in total. And finally, renewable energy of the kind available in the UK, namely wind and solar, is cheap and clean, but also highly intermittent, depending on the weather, the time of day and the time of year. And solving this intermittency problem could require government to step in to meet some of the up to £20 billion costs of storing energy overnight and between seasons. And, and these, these emerging geopolitical and energy risks need to be managed alongside and in the context of a set of longer-term pressures on the public finances. So the third and final chapter of our report provides an updated set of 50-year projections um, going out to the 2070s. And this is our first full update of those long-term fiscal projections um, since 2018. And so these new projections take account of the following significant changes in the interim. First, a more favourable starting primary balance, which is thanks in part to the tax increases introduced by the previous Chancellor in the wake of the pandemic. Secondly, updated demographic assumptions on the basis of the interim population projections published by the ONS in January of this year. Third, the loss of £30 billion in motoring taxes as a result of the fact that petrol-driven vehicles are being phased out. Fourth, other economic impacts, including the offsetting effects 
of a big increase in government public investment over the long term, which is offset against the productivity impact of the cost of getting to net zero. And finally, other policy changes, including the additional cost of the government's adult social care reforms and modest savings from reforming the student loan system. Looking in more detail at the demographic assumptions, our projections incorporate the following three major changes relative to our 2018 fiscal sustainability report. First, a lower birth rate, which has been revised down from 1.84 to 1.59 per woman, reflecting a drop in births that largely predates the pandemic. Second, lower net migration, consistent with the new post-Brexit migration regime, which contributes to a reduction in average net inflows from 165,000 to 129,000 per year. And third, slower improvements in life expectancy, with the average life expectancy for a woman born in the mid-2040s revised down from 95.6 to 92.6 years. And as you can see from the chart on the left, taken together, these three changes reduce the average growth in the overall population from 0.3% in our 2018 FSR to minus 0.1%, which means the overall population actually falls in our latest projections. But what matters more for fiscal sustainability is not so much the size of the population, but the age structure of the population. And so as you can see from the chart on the right, the share of those under the age of 15 shrinks from 19 to 14% between 2022 and 2072, while the share of those aged 65 and over rises from 19 to 29% over that period. And this chart summarizes what these various changes imply for the evolution of tax and primary spending over the next 50 years. As you can see, receipts declined slightly as a share of GDP, almost entirely due to the loss of motoring taxes as the vehicle fleet electrifies. The falling birth rate reduces spending on education by just under 1% of GDP, which is in the blue bars there. Um, it's, that's a small decline as a share of GDP, but a very large proportionate decline in education spending. But the overall aging of the population, combined with significant non-demographic costs, pushes up spending on health by 7%, adult social care by 1%, and pensions by 3% of GDP. Looking at what that implies for the path of the primary balance, a more favorable fiscal starting point, coupled with lower spending on education and welfare, means that in the near term, the primary deficit actually falls below our 2018 projections until the mid-2050s. But after that, the steady aging of the population creates a growing gap between receipts and primary spending thereafter, which rises to 11% of GDP by the end of the projection period. And you can see from the breakdown on the right, this is 2.6% of GDP worse than we forecast uh, back in 2018 by the time we get to the 50-year point due to the net effect of three things. First, there's a slightly better fiscal starting point, as I mentioned, which takes 0.7% of GDP off the deficit. Second, the combination of a lower birth rate, lower migration, and higher mortality adds 1.1% of GDP to the deficit. And third, the loss of motoring taxes adds another 1.6% of GDP to the deficit. The lower path for primary spending in the near term sees debt fall to 70% of GDP by the early 2040s, but after that, the growing primary deficit and the rising interest, interest burden puts debt on an exponentially rising path, which reaches 267% of GDP by the early 2070s. Of course, our baseline projection for debt assumes that nothing else goes wrong over the next 50 years, factoring in stylized estimates of the overall, the average fiscal cost of a recession, or the, or the specific shocks modeled in our first two chapters could see debt rise to 3 or 400% of GDP. And let me conclude with a few reflections on the realism of these projections, which have been included in this, but also in previous fiscal sustainability reports. I think there are those who claim that such projections, which see debt exceed 200% of GDP over 50 years, are silly or unrealistic or will never come to pass. But let me start by observing that debt in the UK has reached 200% of GDP on two occasions in the aftermath of the Napoleonic and the Second World Wars. So such levels of debt are not unheard of in this country. 
And debt levels in Japan today, a country whose demographic structure is arguably a foretaste of our own, is already above 250% of GDP. And finally, this year marks the 20th anniversary of the UK's first attempt to construct 50-year fiscal projections. And this chart shows here in yellow the outcome of the Treasury's first long-term public finances report, which was published in 2002, and forecast that the level of debt in this year, 2022, would be just under 40% of GDP. Of course, we now know the government debt turned out to be over twice as high, at 96% of GDP, this year. And, and we also now know what caused it, a financial crisis, a productivity slowdown, a pandemic, a European war, and an energy crisis. But back in 2002, the idea that our debt could reach this level was also unthinkable, at least to me as a young economist working in the Treasury at the time. And so for me, that underscores the importance of exercises such as this in thinking the unthinkable, both about where underlying trends that shape our societies, our economies, and our public finances might take us in the next 50 years, but also about the potential shocks, threats, and crises that we might encounter along the way. And I look forward to hearing what my fellow panelists and you think about the report we've just done. Thank you. Thank you very much, Richard. Malcolm, Malcolm let me start with you. Mm. Um, Geopolitical threats that the UK face have become painfully obvious to the UK population, perhaps things that were already there, but people were very mm. unaware of in their own lives. Yeah, Richard sort of touched on the pressure for potentially more defence spending in the future. What do you see as the major geopolitical threats and how are they likely to affect the UK? Well, I think the OBR report uh, covers this very well. And I would uh, divide the, the, the threats into two. The, the first is really the threat of deglobalisation. Uh, with a long tail risk uh, of a 1931, a global uh, breakdown, breakdown of global trade and, and, and plummeting of, of levels of uh, global integ uh, integration in, in both in, in trade and in capital flows. And the second risk is what I call remilitarization, increasing levels of defense spending, not only in the UK but worldwide as a proportion of GDP. And I guess a long tail risk there is a major power war. <laughs> of the sort we saw in World War I, World War II, and indeed in the Napoleonic Wars. And th those two, I think, are linked. Those two risks are linked because both uh, are about the return to what uh, the government's own integrated review called systemic competition, the growing salience of competition between major powers, uh, which we route to a level which we haven't seen since the end of the Cold War which I think throws into question some of the fundamental assumptions that have driven economic globalisation. So we all know as economists, Ricardian comparative advantage, uh, trade is worthwhile if you both benefit. <laughs> uh, but uh, in a world in which you care more about the relative, your relative position compared with other competitor powers, then both benefiting is not enough if the other guy benefits more than you do, the other state benefits more than you do. And we see that, I think, in the way in which, uh, of course, the, the proliferation of sanctions against Russia and to, to a more limited extent against China, but more and more public policy in the UK and the US and elsewhere, and also actually in Russia and China, uh, is about uh, the risks from trading, intellectual property, goods, services, the risks of of foreign investment from countries that are seen as competitors, all of which is beginning to gum up uh, the, the trends of globalisation we saw for a long time. And uh, those trends are likely to intensify the greater the risks of war between major states rise. So if you're right now, the, the risk of war with Russia 
we are in an indirect war with Russia already, but the risk of a direct war with Russia is much higher than it was a year ago. And that means we're a lot more sensitive uh, to economic interdependence. And if we, you know, our, our economic relationship with Russia is now much more dominated by our, our desire to weaken Russia <laughs> than it is to strengthen ourselves economically. And that's a fundamental change from the era of globalization. Uh, and certainly uh, that could well be the case in relation to China. Many of the people I talk to in the security community in United States see a war over Taiwan as more likely than not <laughs> over the next decade. And if you really believe that, that has fundamental implications for uh, the economic relationship between China and most of the rest of the world. So deglobalization, remilitarization, I think, are the two big uh, geopolitical trends which OBR rightly identifies risks. Uh, how they materialize, of course, we don't know. If you look at, however, uh, at the government's integrated review of foreign defence and development policy brought out just a couple of years ago now, which set the framework uh, on, uh, on the external policy for, uh, for uh, the spending review, uh, the 2020 spending review, there's a striking disjuncture between those allocations and what I've just said. Uh, in the SR20, uh, the lowest percentage growth in real spending across uh, all government departments uh, was in the Ministry of Defence and the Foreign Office. Uh, the Ministry of Defence got an increase in, in annual spending over the uh, period up to 24-25 of about 1.6% per annum in real terms, a lot lower than health, education, almost all domestic departments. And the FCDO actually saw a significant real terms reduction uh, largely as a result of the cut in, in order in, in, in development assistance. Uh, moreover, defence uh, uh, invested a lot more in capital spending uh, in its nuclear programme and new fighter aircraft and new, new ships and so on, uh, but financed that in part uh, because of the cut in order, but also, I think, because there was a significant, uh, small but significant real terms cut in recurrent spending and spending whose defence benefits come now <laughs> rather than in the 2030s. So it was a spending allocation that was really designed for the threats we might uh, uh, have to address in the 2030s, more about China, if you like, uh, than about Russia. Right now, uh, the biggest gaps in our defence provision are about what we would need in the next months or the next two, three, four years if in the terrible event that we actually get into a shooting war with Russia. And there, there are some real problems but uh, our spending allocation doesn't seem to reflect that. So I think one of the things, a lot will depend on how the war in Ukraine develops over coming months, but I think it feels more likely than not to me that the next decade will see significant further deglobalization, significant further remilitarization. Uh, re the only question, I think, is, is how much. Thank you. Lots of food for thought there, which we'll come back to. Andrew, one of the more predictable trends within uh, Richard's analysis was the sort of demographic trajectory that the UK is on. What are the major issues there? How should the government be preparing for those? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I, I'll follow on and congratulate the OBR for looking at demographics. You know, all the big trends that are incredibly important for our future, like sustainability, conflicts, deglobalisation, AI and robotics, demographics is the one that never kind of gets pushed to the top. It's just not seen as an exciting issue. Uh, but it's a really important one for us personally and socially. 
Uh, and I think the important thing is we need to start doing something. So let me say why I think we get it wrong and what we need to do to do something about it. So I'll begin where everyone always begins, which is with the ageing society story. I mean, I used to write essays about it as an undergraduate, so it's, you know, it's, it's something we've known for a very, very long time. Every country around the world is going through a demographic transition, birth rates falling, people are living for longer, older cohorts are for the first time larger than younger cohorts, average age of society is increasing, there's more old people, the old age dependency ratio is rising, and this is all doom and gloom. Uh, old people are a problem, they don't work, they get ill, they need pensions, uh, and it's, it's a very negative story. I have to say, I kind of got into this in longevity by giving a lecture which said, on average, we're living longer and we're healthier for longer. And you think, well, how do we turn this into a bad news story? So, uh, you know, and you can see some of the sort of perverse ways that old age dependency ratio thinking leads you to, because, you know, the report's very good, but sort of implicitly it says, oh, well, the birth rate's fallen, we downgraded our life expectancy forecast. That's good news for fiscal policy. And actually, you know, if you think about it, that's, that's kind of the wrong way around. It should, we should say, why is the birth rate falling? Why are we downgrading life expectancy? Uh, the other thing which the report emphasises is though every country in the world is going through this demographic transition, it's actually less urgent in the UK or less large in the UK than many other countries. We had a much more elongated demographic transition. Our birth rate hasn't fallen as much as, say, China and Japan and now Italy. Uh, we haven't achieved the same life expectancy increases as many other countries, and we've relied more upon immigration. Of course, that's going to change, looking at the immigration forecasts, looking at the downgrading of fertility, but it all means the UK, although it's got this problem, it's actually not as severe as elsewhere. I have huge sympathy for the OBR and what they do. I'm on their advisory board, I think, so I have to have huge sympathy for them. You know, here they are trying to look at long-run projections of fiscal policy. As an economic theorist, I'll tell you, the, the, the most important thing about debt is it's got a big unit root component, which means shocks are permanent, which means the forecast arises and just explodes the further out you go. You know, debt in 50 years' time could be anywhere between mi minus 250 and plus 600. I mean, it's, it's just a huge range. And, uh, you know, we saw that at the end of how precarious it is to forecast trends. So an obvious thing to do is to pick up on other long-run trends, like demography. And the old age dependency ratio is a key part of that. I kind of think we shouldn't. I think we massively overestimate the old age dependency ratio as an important variable. We saw from the pictures uh, in the report that the OADR, the old age dependency ratio, is going to go from 30% today to 55% in 50 years' time, a near doubling. Over the last 100 years, it's gone from 10 to 30%, a tripling. But I can't think of a single economic analysis of the performance of the UK economy or the increase in government debt that's occurred that says that has had anything to do with those variables. In other words, we know demography is not destiny. There are other things that change. I think that's where we start to bring in the policy responses. Because for me, there's two things happening. And the one we always hear about is the ageing society. And that's simply a change in the age structure of the population. Nothing else changes. There's just more old people. But for me, I think what's really important is there's a longevity society that we need to adapt to. People are living for longer. And the really big change that's happened is the young can now expect to become old. If you look at those ONS production projections, even the downgraded one, median life expectancy for someone born in the UK today is early 90s. So we've got to adapt to a whole new map of life. We need to change how we age. And I find the focus on changes in the age structure of the population just at best incomplete, probably misleading, and conceals what the changes are that need to happen. We need to age differently.
So for me, a longevity society is about the young, middle-aged and the old. How do we adapt to this longer future? And for me, longevity has two aspects which form the basis of policy. One is time. Whether you're 20, 40, 60 or 80, you've got more time ahead of you than past generations. So you need to invest in your future differently. That's how you change your behavior at every age. This, I think, is linked into things like falling fertility. Uh, we're adapting to a new map of life. It's why people are getting married later, having children later, they're working later, getting divorced later. All sorts of changes are happening because of this. But if you focus on time and having more time, then actually chronological age is very misleading because chronological age, which defines the old age dependency ratio, is how many years you've lived, not how many years you've still got to go. And the average Brit has never been so old, but never had so long left to live. If you use things like Sanderson and Sherboff's prospective age, they define being old as within 15 years of the end of your life, though those OADR numbers look much, much better and much uh, uh, easier. And even in Richard's numbers, you can see the big impact on health expenditure is not the demographic, it's the non-demographic assumptions, which I think are right, because as we live longer, across the whole life, healthcare is going to get ever more larger. So time is a key part, and then there's malleability changing how we age. You know, we know from study after study, and Michael Marmot's great work on health inequalities, there are socioeconomic influences about how we age. So if we really worry about getting old and being ill, what do we do now to change something about it? And the old age dependency ratio, by focusing just upon old age, misses out that malleability. It's about a new health system much more focused upon tackling uh, age-related illnesses before they arrive. It's about keeping people healthy for longer rather than treating them when they get ill. That's a massive reform to the health system. And then, you know, the other thing, if you've got this time and malleability, the third thing that pops out from that is diversity. To look at defining people as from state pension age up as old is crazy because people age in really, really different ways. Not every 80-year-old has dementia or needs care. And so we really need to have a much more nuanced policy just as you wouldn't define everyone under 65 as needing one common set of policies, neither we need to think about that when we think about people who are older. So time, malleability and diversity are key. What does all this mean? Governments need to start thinking about a longevity agenda. We've got these longer lives. How do we turn them into healthy lives and how do we turn them into productive lives? And that has huge implications for health, education and this, the choices we make over our lifespan, including things like fertility. So that, for me, is the agenda we need, how to turn these longer lives into healthy and more productive ones, which, of course, means that just as the tripling in the OADR the last 100 years hasn't been the main driver of the, the debt-GDP ratio, neither will I think, if we adapt appropriately, will that increase from 30 to 55 be a main driver of the future. Fantastic. Thank you very much for bringing some much-needed positivity to this. Do my best. Do my best. <laughs> Rosa, the pandemic obviously shone a lot of light on how the government prepares for catastrophic risks. How does the government go about doing this and what did we learn about the shortcomings of that approach so far from the pandemic? So I'm going to simplify this slightly so we're not here all day. Um, but essentially, it starts by identifying risks through a process called the National Security Risk Assessment, goes to departments, asks them what risks they think might arise in their areas, gets them to produce a reasonable worst-case scenario, which is essentially what do you think reasonably might happen if it was as bad as it could be if the risk emerged. Um, and then the Civil Contingency Secretariat, which is the team that leads on this in the Cabinet Office, collates those 
risks, reviews them, and puts them in a matrix according to how likely they are to occur and what impact they would have according to those reasonable worst-case scenarios. And then each of those risks is assigned to a lead department who's supposed to take the lead on preparing for them. And like you said, the COVID pandemic highlighted a number of shortcomings. I think there's two that stand out particularly from the work we've done. The first one is that the published version of the NSRA, the National Risk Register, had an emerging infectious disease pandemic, so not a flu pandemic, not a disease we'd seen before, uh, as likely to cause 100 deaths. So, I mean, the COVID pandemic showed that was out by several orders of magnitude. Um, so there's the question of wh why did it fail so poorly to identify the risks of a pandemic like COVID? I think one of the things that's really come out there is a kind of lack of external challenge because you did have academics who are highlighting that uh, a pandemic like COVID could have a much bit greater impact than the NRR was saying. Um, and there is some external challenge into the process, but it's all convened by government. So you can end up with the potential for groupthink. And that's something that the government has recognised and is already looking at changing. And the second one is that there was real variability in how departments actually prepared. So a lot of preparations for a pandemic focused on flu, um, because that was assumed to be the kind of pandemic that we were going to get. Um, but even within that, how departments prepared was very varied. So, for example, the Treasury hadn't prepared economic support plans, even though the flu preparedness plans did say that there were going to be significant economic impacts, and DfE hadn't planned for school closures, even though that was also highlighted as something that might have to happen. Um, and I think part of that is about a lack of kind of central oversight and external scrutiny. So people looking at departmental plans and saying, have you prepped for this, even though you're not the lead department on this? Um, and are you ready for the risks that have actually been identified? Brilliant. Thank you very much. Richard, I want to come to you first, perhaps ask the sort of obvious elephant question in the room. We've had all of the leadership candidates, well, not, not quite all, actually, many of the leadership candidates um, talking about proposals for tax cuts and suggesting this would help to boost economic growth. Can you just briefly say how that would show up in the type of analysis that you've presented today? Sure. And I guess before coming on to questions of what impact tax cuts might have, it's probably worth starting with why is the tax burden going up over the next few years? And it is the case that in our latest forecast, uh, in, in, in part because of the tax rises introduced by the previous chancellor, the tax burden is going up by about 3% of GDP. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about how that's to somehow pay for the consequences of the pandemic. But in fact, most of it is actually paying for exactly the kind of trends that we've been highlighting here. It is paying for a government which is uh, spending more on the health service, more on adult social care, and a government actually which is investing more. So I, I guess the first question for those who are thinking about cutting taxes, and so, so it's, the tax burden is going up by 3% of GDP. 2% of that is to pay for a bigger state, which is providing more health care, more adult social care, and investing more than it used to. There's then 1% of GDP, which is a margin to meet the government's fiscal targets and, and the targets set out in the Conservative Party manifesto, which is to balance the current budget and get debt falling um, by the middle of this decade. So I guess the first question you have to ask people promising tax cuts is, well, are you going to revisit those increases in spending um, or, or look somewhere else, but we've also highlighted pressures um, you know, in, in other areas of, of the public service. 
or are you going to you know, get rid of that headroom, that room for manoeuvre which you have against meeting your fiscal objectives by the middle of the decade, given all the risks and uncertainties that we are that we're aware of? So um, I, I think in that, se in that sense, it's important that you know, these promises add up, um, either in terms of, you know, taking more risks against your fiscal objectives or revisiting um, where you want to spend, uh, spend public money. And then in terms of the, the impact of tax cuts, I mean, cutting taxes can provide some short-term stimulus to demand, um, uh, but you have to remember they would be working against a lot of other things going on in the economy, which, would be, which are also weighing um, quite heavily on demand. You know, we've got rising inflation, rising interest rates, and quite a lot of uncertainty about the medium-term fiscal outlook. So trying to stimulate an economy, trying to stimulate demand in that kind of context is going to be a challenge, but it can provide some offset to those factors which are weighing against it. But I think you have to be realistic about how much that can do. Um, but in, in the long term, you know, there is no empirical relationship between the tax burden and GDP growth. Um, there are countries which tax much more highly than we do and grow faster um, than we do. There are, there are countries which tax less, tax less and grow less. Um, and that's because what matters for the growth rate of the economy in the long run is what happens on the supply side of the, of the economy. And that has to do with how many people are in the workforce, the skill levels of those people in the workforce, and the capital stock that those people are working with to produce the things which the economy produces. And the tax system doesn't work terribly well or terribly quickly on those, the, on those big stocks of things, the people, the skill levels they have, and the amount of capital that you have in an economy. To the extent that they make any difference to those, to those you know, big determinants of long-run growth, it happens very slowly, and it's not the kind of thing which is going to get you growth in, in the next few years um, to help you meet, meet those, those fiscal objectives um, which are set out in the Conservative Party manifesto. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I want to come to all of you then. I mean, in different ways, you've outlined some of the challenges facing this and future governments. If there are one or two things that you would pick that you would like to see the government doing that they're not doing at the moment to prepare for any of this, what would you pick? And I suppose given some of the uncertainties in particular, are there any sort of no regrets things that the government could be doing for any of this? Mark, I'll start with you. <laughs> you know, on defence, I think I would say that uh, there's clearly a very strong priority, given what's happened in Ukraine, to focus more on our armed forces being better prepared for a major conflict in the next years rather than the next decade, the next two, three, four years. And that does require some additional spending. And actually, the, uh, some of the biggest uh, obstacles to that are, are not actually on the budgetary side. Uh, they're on the defence industrial side, where we've run, uh, like many of our Western counterparts, we've run a defence policy with quite a lot of of focus on the front line, on, on having ships and uh, armed forces personnel and aircraft and so on, without the munitions to make uh, them effective in battle. Because we, we've, there's been a, an assumption, sometimes explicit, that if there is going to be a war, it's going to be quite limited and, and, and short, um, and limited and or short. Uh, and one of the lessons of the last three months in Ukraine is that you can run down... Uh, stocks of, of munitions really rapidly. I mean, we haven't seen something like this, certainly since the Korean War, maybe since World War II. We have an incredible position which Russia is running out <laughs> of precision-guided munitions. It's not, I saw a picture the other day of a T-34 tank, which is World War II vintage, being deployed in a Ukrainian city and in uh, uh, they're using dumb bombs uh, because they've run out of precision-guided weapons. 
And in the West, <laughs> including in the UK, one of the constraints on helping Ukrainians is simply we were running down our stocks so rapidly uh, that we're not perhaps running out entirely, but we're getting to a situation in which we think, heck, the British army or even the American army in some areas is not going to have things. So the no regret thing I would do is focus on that. Uh, I, I would also say, I think, I, I mean, we see this in the leadership contest, perhaps understandably. Uh, in the public debate and defence, there's too much focus uh, on these visible indicators. So you could waste a lot of money uh, focusing on having more ships uh, or more army personnel or whatever without fo- uh, investing in things that really matter. And I think I'd also say that I think it's too early to set these uh, percentage of GDP targets or even real terms increased targets uh, for the UK until we see how things turn out in the war. There are things we need to do now which we should be focusing on, uh, but we don't need to think. Uh, I don't think we need to set that medium term target just yet. We may, I think we will maybe within the next year or so, but, but not right now. Uh, because again, that we could end up spending an awful lot of money on things which aren't actually the main priorities, just to give one, one obvious uh, factor in that discussion. An awful lot depends on whether we are structuring our armed forces primarily for Russia in the 2030s or for, or for China. <laughs> if we're structuring it more for China, uh, then uh, it's about the Navy and the armed forces and the nuclear force, but it's probably not about the army very much. <laughs> uh, if it's about Russia, then uh, the, the, the army becomes really important. Uh, and it's no accident that the U.S. Army is really focused on the Russia threat and the U.S. Navy is really focused on the, on the China threat. So we, we, we need to get that right. And then the deglobalization uh, issues, which I think are, are, in terms of budgetary consequences, potentially bigger in the absence of a major war, uh, then uh, I think sometimes our, in our discussion about in the security community about sanctions and about the range of measures we should take to reduce dependence on China and Russia... Uh, many of which I think are justified. I think there's not enough uh, analysis of the consequences, the economic consequences of deglobalization for ourselves, uh, perhaps because uh, the security community and the economic community work in parallel and don't talk to each other enough. So the no regrets thing I would do <laughs> is having a much more integrated discussion about uh, various forms of sanctions within this country. So the economics perspective and the security perspective are are melded much more effectively. A good example of that, I would say, uh, is uh, mapping the consequences uh, of the the, the government's new policy uh, of moving strongly against the Russian economic presence in London, which has been uh, an important... For for the UK, it's not so much about hydrocarbons. It's more about uh, Russian... uh, the massive... Uh, business we've had in the services sector, financial services sector in the UK, which is now dissipating very rapidly. Uh, If you talk to people on the security side, they'd probably say, well, none of those consequences really matter economically. Uh, I've yet to see credible studies of whether that's true or not. Uh, If it is, that means we can do more of it without really having much pain. But I suppose as an economist, I'm rather sceptical that all that massive effort... Uh, under Labour and Conservative governments, uh, Peter Mandels and George Osborne, many of those leading figures, a lot of their time was spent um, uh, courting Russian investment in the UK, which is now vanishing uh, at the rate of knots. Uh, 
you know, re re some real, maybe the OBR or somebody could, could do a proper study of, of <laughs> how much it's costing us uh, to break the economic links with Russia, which have been you know, an important aspect of the last couple of decades. And I haven't even gone on to China. You might be able to come back to China in a bit. Um, Andrew, I'll come to you next. Oh, it's a long list, isn't it? Well, let me, on, the, on the longevity side, which, of course, is just such a broad agenda, let me just focus on two things, and then I'll come to the no regrets part. Uh, so the, the first one is, let's sort of focus on the state pension age, but actually employment starts to fall from age 50. And you know, that if people are living to their early 90s, stopping work at 50s is a problem uh, for all sorts of reasons. So how do we support participation from 50-plus onwards? Uh, and that's obviously going to be around health, education, caring, age discrimination, a whole bunch of issues. Uh, and again, recognise the diversity in the labour market. As an academic, it's very easy for me to carry on working, uh, but for many others, it's not. So how do we support employment from 50 plus? That just seems to me like a, you know, a GDP gift that every country can focus on. Health, you know, we, we just urgently to shift to more of a preventative focus. And, you know, one of the things, I, again, we're really messed up thinking about age because there are changes that the young will now become the old. So when we look at these old age dependency ratios of 2072, um, well, that's, you know, people who are 22 today will be, uh, 20 today will be 70 in 2072. We can't have this continual cycle of finding ourselves unprepared for the length of life that people are living in terms of their health, their activity, and their finances. So we mustn't do that. On the no regrets, I mean, was it the Righteous Brothers did no regrets? So it's easy to be a bit righteous and say, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do. I think that the challenge that's sort of here uh, is there's a, the environment's got riskier. And if you think about risk, how do you deal with that risk? And I think there's always sort of two approaches to that. One is to say, let's have the optimal policy. Let's identify every single risk, attach probabilities to it, and work out a plan. But I kind of like the robust control approach, which is that, we don't really know what's going to happen, but we need to make sure we've got the flexibility to respond. I think the whole trouble with risk is that you've got to take out insurance. You've got to give yourself options. You've got to have the military there in case you do need to have a war. Wouldn't it be great if we don't need that, but we're going to need it? And so actually the thing with insurance is you always wish you didn't have to pay for it when the event doesn't happen. So I don't think we can avoid a no-regrets policy, but we've got to think about how we have a robust policy that deals with these major risks. And other things you would point to as being that kind of the insurance policy? How do we make the UK? Uh, well, we talked about pandemics. Uh, uh, we talked about uh, military. I, I, obviously, the environment is going to be a, a, another one. Um, I, we've got no idea how AI is going to work out as well. So I think thinking you know, around that, around particularly around education, seems very important. Thanks. Rosa? Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think when you look at the COVID pandemic, one of the issues was potentially that we had prepared so specifically for flu. So I think it's definitely about how do you create broader resilience that works for a range of risks rather than trying to predict exactly which risk it's going to be. I think where that gets a bit tricky is obviously then you get into questions of capacity and that becomes potentially very expensive. So I think looking at how do you build in flexibility, um, look at kind of ahead of time contracts, those kinds of things that potentially build you in that flexibility without necessarily having to have loads of excess capacity in all your services, which gets very expensive. Um, and then apart from that, I mean, I think improving government risk management systems would be comparatively incredibly cheap. Uh, the government's already making improvements to its risk assessment, um, but 
we think it could do more in terms of strengthening the CCS so that it can actually go to departments and say, have you prepped on this? Improving parliamentary scrutiny, um, external scrutiny in general. Um, and I think also potentially thinking about how to incentivize departments to really think about preparedness and making it clear that it's one of their kind of priority outcomes to be focusing on this, even if they're not the lead government department on that risk. Um, potentially do that through the spending review process. There are various ways that you mm. could do that. Um, I think all of those kinds of reforms would be comparatively very cheap and would help to build that kind of generalised resilience. Thanks. Richard? I think given that the government's committed to getting to net zero and fossil fuels have just gotten more expensive, sort of moving away from fossil fuels seems like a, uh, a sort of even more of a, a no-brainer if, if we are going to uh, st uh, stop the warming of the planet. But I, I think what, we, what we've observed in the last few months has been interesting in the sense that, and I think it highlights the fact that there's oftentimes a contradiction between what you need to do to adapt to a challenge versus what you need to do to mitigate its consequences in the most of what the government's done in the last few months has actually been to you know uh, make uh, you know to subsidize fossil fuels right it's cut fuel duty um, it's helped households with the cost of energy and of course that's what you need to do to help people through an energy crisis but none of those things are actually creating incentives to move away from fossil fuels which is what you need to do in the longer term if you're going to reduce your dependence on them um, and you know, both for climate reasons, but also because these things are more expensive, more volatile, and being produced by countries um, who are not necessarily our allies. But I think it does throw up the fact that these choices are not easy. The things that you might have to do in the near term to deal with the crisis are not the things which actually help you get to your longer term objective of actually reducing the economy's dependence on these things. And can I pick up on something Rosa was sort of touching on there about how this sort of resilience insurance features in spending allocations within government. As a former Treasury official, how does this play out and how can we make it more part of the discussion and ensure that departments do allocate money for this sort of insurance policy? So the Treasury keeps a very small central reserve to deal with uh, sort of shocks and pressures. But I, I think, as, as you have no doubt observed in many reports, this thing gets spent even before the year starts because it gets pre-committed to risk that people are already aware of and sort of didn't get, but just didn't get budgeted for. And so it's not really a reserve set aside for the, for the genuinely unforeseeable. Um, again, at the sort of macro level, chancellors tend to hold back this kind of headroom against their fiscal targets. So they sort of, they, they, they aim to overachieve whatever their targets are for getting the deficit down, for getting debt to start falling. But what we've always discovered at the OBR in forecasting the journey to that destination is that chancellors never set aside enough headroom for the, for the uh, target they've set themselves because they always underestimate how much can go wrong along the way. And they, and they also tend to, on the way to their targets, spend the good news and then, they're only faced, they, then, mm. then they only have to face the cost of the, of the bad news when it materialises. So that headroom number very seldom goes up over time. It always kind of runs down over time. Um, and so, so in that sense, uh, I think governments seem to just sort of systematically under-provision for the risks um, because the known knowns uh, get banked, you know, Im immediately, and then the unknown, and then there's very little left um, to pay for the unknown unknowns. Um, so there's a question come in online. Um, you showed Richard the 2002 Treasury projection. Um, so the question is, how have the OBR's own projections fared on this front since the OBR came to being in 2010 and looking at these longer-term projections? I suppose a sort of additional question from me is. Do you think there's any extent to which having the OBR as independent has reduced the extent to which there might have been political wishful thinking and the assumptions that were built into some of those longer term projections back in 2002? 
So I guess there's two things you've got to look at in terms of forecast errors. I think one is, you know, one is, one is accuracy and the other is bias. And I, I mean, it, it is the case that since the OBR was set up and one of the reasons for setting up the OBR was not so much to improve the accuracy of forecasting, but to reduce, but to reduce the bias in forecasting in that the forecast produced within the Treasury were sort of serially optimistic about where the economy and public finances were going to go. And the idea was by taking, uh, you know, by putting an independent institution in charge of those, you could reduce that bias. As it's, as it's turned out, we've, we've turned out to be less biased and also more accurate um, along the way. And, and that's despite the fact so far we've, we've, had, to, we've had to contend with, with a pandemic along the way. Um, but but it, it, is, it is the case that all forecasts turn out to be wrong. Um, you know, just like a weather forecast never gets the temperature at every time of day um, over the next week uh, exactly right, they do turn out to be wrong. I think the issue is just... Um, you know, to what extent are you managing to predict uh, where the public finances are heading um, with, uh, you know, on average with a reasonable degree of accuracy? I think so far um, the OBR has been an improvement on doing those forecasts in-house. But what I also say is that uh, we regularly report every year on our forecast accuracy in something called the forecast evaluation report. And that's a really important exercise to look back at what we, what we got right, what we got wrong, what we didn't see coming. We did, a, we did a long review of the experience of the pandemic and what lessons we learned uh, from that as forecasters. And I think the final thing to say is that it's really important that we don't just produce kind of this book, um, which is our sort of central five-year forecast of the economic public finances used um, for the budget, but that we also produce this book, which looks at all the things which are not in there, all the things which could go wrong along the way, which aren't in our central forecast, but are these kind of tail risks, be they on the, on the security side, be they on the environmental side, you know, be they risks around changing demographic trends. Um, so, and, and governments need to pay attention to both, not just the central forecast, but also are they prepared for the things which we haven't forecast but might go, go wrong along the way. And I mean, we've seen different reactions to your fiscal risks, or not your personal, but OBR fiscal risks reports over the years with more or less detail in response to those. What would you like to see from government in response to what you've set out here? I mean, hopefully more discussion of these sorts about, you know, what, what risks are hanging over the outlook and where trends are, are headed. I think, understandably, since we started producing these reports, government's been quite caught up with just managing the risks that have materialised, in particular, those related to the pandemic and energy prices. But originally, these reports, when we started publishing them, were designed to elicit a response from government in policy terms. And in fairness, they have actually addressed some of the issues that have been raised in our reports. And it's understandable that they don't address address all of them all at once, um, but uh, I think you know we would we would welcome a more formal and, and lengthier response from governments about how they're facing up to the issues highlighted in the report and how they're being reflected into policy. But it's understandable that an awful lot of government's time is taken up dealing firefighting um, rather than trying to prevent the next the next fire from happening. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to just pick up on the China issue that mm. Malcolm you raised, and you talked about how the military implications of China might be, China threats might be yeah. rather different. I'd be interested in, perhaps particularly Richard and Malcolm, your thoughts on what do the economic impacts of a, a threat from China, a China-Taiwan war look like? Um, in a sense, we've perhaps learned that the, our links to Russia are limited to some extent, but that wouldn't be true for links to China. What, what does that actually look like? How would the government prepare if that really was as your American contacts were saying a strong possibility in the next decade? I think it's an excellent question. And I think sitting in Washington, in, in the security community there, even now they see China as the driver 
for American foreign and security policy, not Russia. Russia is not exactly a sideshow. It's very important. But often it's for, for Americans, it's important because of what it will, what it means for their future relationship with China, which is the world's second uh, superpower. Uh, and um, if, if there were to be a, a significant conflict, I mean, we can imagine some limited conflicts, if there would be to a significant conflict over Taiwan, a, an attempted invasion or something else there, then as in the case of Russia, one of the policy instruments which uh, the United States would reach for and would want us to reach for in solidarity with them would be economic sanctions. And it's one of the greatest vulnerabilities of China. China does not yet have the naval forces which can protect its energy flows from the Middle East. China is very dependent on hydrocarbon imports, for example. Uh, it's very dependent on global markets uh, for its products, uh, including uh, G7 markets. So it's, it's got global markets, uh, but its, its markets in the United States and Europe are, are also very important. Uh, and I, the, the pressure, I think, for using that as a lever... <laughs> Uh, to punish China, to coerce China into changing its policy, as in the case of Russia, uh, would be uh, very considerable indeed. Uh, they may be even in advance of that event, <laughs> uh, and certainly you're already seeing that, but increasing intolerance uh, for Chinese investment uh, in, in uh, critical infrastructure in, in high-technology areas. You saw that in the speech. The head of MI5, the head of FBI, gave a, a joint presentation just a few days ago about the, the threat from China, a lot of which to do, is to do with IP theft, linked to educational interdependence. You know, very large numbers of Chinese researchers in British universities, for example, how far is that a, a national security threat? And China is a much bigger player, self-evidently, than Russia in the global economy. And Russia's pretty big in, in, in sectors which perhaps we hadn't thought about, like sunflower oil as well as hydrocarbons, but China is absolutely massive. And I think it's hard to see a situation which you simply impose economic sanctions on China, you break that link, and nothing else changes. It has systemic impact on the world economy. It is, uh, I mean, I think the risk of a 1931 is much higher. The, all the knock-on effects in terms of protectionism and so on, how far do, do countries which try to sit outside the Western versus Russia-China contest, how are they affected? How is ASEAN affected? How was... How Africa, Middle East, and so on. I mean, the, the consequences are enormous. Uh, so I think the risks of a massive reduction in world trade and capital flows as a consequence of a war or near war between the United States and China is still underpriced, actually. I think there's still this assumption, and I mean, one's seen this for a very long period of time, that the economics community, the people, the business community who are who are invested, make a lot of money for international trade. Basically, they assume the, the risks of war between major powers is zero or near zero. It's not something they price in. Well, right now, uh, I think that would be a foolish assumption. It's, it's not probable, but it's sufficiently likely. And even uh, the closer you get to that, the, more, the less tolerance there will be in Western governments uh, for the degree of dependence we have on countries which are now seen as, as major competitors. And also the less tolerance there will be in Moscow and Beijing <laughs> for dependence on us. Right now in Moscow, they are looking at uh, 
their critical industry, including their military industry, and say, how did we get to a situation where we're reliant on Western components <laughs> for our missiles to work? Uh, this just doesn't make any sense. And so Russia is, maybe together, Russia and China are going to move, I think, towards a more, more uh, towards, not to, but towards a, a more self-sufficient uh, approach. So I think quite a lot of what we've taken for granted, globalization is inevitable assumptions are, are really going to be uh, unwound rather rapidly. Richard, is this something you looked at? Do you have anything to add to that? Perhaps what resilience to this looks like? It, it was something which we looked at in, in another part of the geopolitical tensions chapter was the economic dimension to this. Um, and it was extra, extraordinary, but I, I think right um, the, to hear Malcolm talking about the age of globalisation in the past tense and that that is the way that people in the diplomatic community and foreign policy community are, are talking. And China's been a huge driver of global economic integration over the last uh, two decades. Um, but when you just look at the data, cross-border trade flows, cross-border investment flows peaked in 2007, 2008, and they've been falling since. Um, one of the things which we look at is what happens if the pace of globalization doesn't just slow down, but actually starts to run from, you know, quite, uh, in, in quite a major way into reverse. And there is a, there is a, a sort of global trade war of, of, of one form or another. And that's actually the biggest risk that we end up highlighting in terms of hit to GDP and hit to the public finances in, in this report. If we, were to go, if we were to have a global trade war which wiped out you know, sort of one-fifth, one-third of the gains we've seen from uh, global economic integration over the last 70 years, you know, for the UK, that could lose us up to 5% of GDP um, over the medium term um, and, and drive our debt on. You know, one, of the worst, one of the worst debt trajectories we show in this report is actually one which shows us suffering the consequences of a big withdrawal of global economic cooperation, a big fall in cross-border trade investment flows because we are a very open economy. We depend on our ability to trade with the rest of the world, um, uh, in, uh, both in goods but in particular in services. And that trade is growing you know, particularly rapidly in Asia. If that goes into reverse, we lose one of the big, one of the big um, engines of dynamism in our own economy. Thank you. Unfortunately, we have now run out of time. So, <laughs> I'm really sorry, um, but please do. Uh, the panelists will be staying <laughs> in the room for a little bit longer, so please do. Thank you very much for tuning in to today's session. Really sorry, we've run out of time to get to all of the questions that there were. Um, thank you very much to all of our panelists, to Andrew, Rosa, Richard, and Malcolm. Um, thank you very much for joining us online and in the room. Um, our next IFG event will be tomorrow morning when we'll be discussing uh, levelling up and the services industry. So please do join us for that if that's of interest to you. Um, but without further ado, I'll thank my panellists. Thank you. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.